Hello, I'm Daniel Lucas and once again we are having a Safa day or Safa Sunday. Uh, <laughs> if you like our episode last week and of course we're doing a follow-up about sci-fi fantasy characters. So Miss Bernal, can you do introduce yourself again of course <laughs> as usual. <laughs> Hello everybody, welcome to apparently uh, uh, Safa Sundays. I'm Safa liking Sundays. the sounds of that. <laughs> ah. Hi, my name is Safa Burnell. I am a Canadian cyberpunk and mythpunk author. I am also a speculative editor for a small press, so I'm on both sides of the pen and the page. When it comes to science fiction and fantasy, I absolutely love complex characters, and we're going to get into some of them today. I am also the author of several books, including The Judge of Mystic Saga, starting with Charandash and Son of Abel, and also some novellas like Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, and then the cyberpunk Neon Leaden novel. I love my books. I think you will too. If you like emotional, complex characters, you will like my books. If that's not your thing, then I am sure I can find other books from authors who approach things a little differently. And then that's good too, because everybody's allowed to like what they like. And yes. just because I say something doesn't mean that that's the be all end all. So remember that too. <laughs> and read things for yourself. Yes. And as we said, we're going to talk about sci-fi fantasy characters that often stand as the embodiment of imagination, limitless potential, weaving together the threads of extraordinary and familiar to create things that captivate and resonate with us. So, Miss Bernal, my first question is, what defines a character as being part of a sci-fi genre versus the fantasy genre? Mm, okay, so when we're looking at the difference between science fiction and fantasy, I think the biggest thing that we have to address is whether you're using technology or magic. And oftentimes you see science fiction being defined as the human organism going through change. And so there's a shakeup, there's that sense of progression or regression, there's that sense of change that happens in science fiction that is very unique to it. Oftentimes it is almost parable-like when it comes to certain things. You, know, you get a lot of science fiction authors, especially the science fiction authors in the 20th century, who were making a case for something. They were trying to get people to look at their society in a different way so that they could make changes within that society. Whereas fantasy comes more from folklore and tradition. And although there is still the subversion or acceptance of tradition, it's a different sort of feel. This isn't about, you know, this aspirational or this sort of dystopic or utopic ideal of what change is going to look like. This is more of that folklorish archetypal place in our hearts. You know, we think of characters like Aragorn, you know, we think of characters like Orwell until we have faces by C.S. Lewis. We think of certain characters in fantasy who are, basically embodying different, you know, folklorish archetypes and things like that, which in science fiction, usually it's a bit different. Usually it's, it's undergoing a change. It's undergoing a shakeup. And 
also using a lot of rationality. Oftentimes in science fiction, you get less religion, less kind of mysticism. Mysticism is brought about by the technology that is sufficiently advanced instead of maybe some form of god or goddess or some form of magic spell or magic power. So I think uh, they're different fields. They definitely <laughs> <Yes>. are. <laughs> different fields. So, Miss Bernal, if you compare our, uh, our science fiction in the 19th century from the 21st century, what is the big difference? I think the number one difference is that science has changed. Oh. You know, if you look at early science fiction, you know, you start looking at earlier and earlier science fiction, there is still this sense that with progress comes positive change or that with the right kind of progress, the right person involved in that progress, there could be positive change. Not that everything had rose colored glasses back in the day, but there is still almost that Roddenberry sense of potential utopia or, well, obviously if we do the following things, you know, here's an example of things gone wrong. So clearly if we just progress in a certain direction, then, you know, we'll kind of be a little bit okay. Whereas I think what happened in the mid 20th century and kind of moving forward is a lingering sense of cynicism that brought, that broke in. Now I'm a cyberpunk author. So me talking about cynicism is like, yes, well, your hair is purple. What else is new? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's cyberpunk as a genre is cynical. It is gritty. It is looking at the socioeconomic caste structure of society and attempting to break it down. In cyberpunk, you have that rebellion input into the system. You have that fight against corporate control. You know, you've got that fight against the corporations that are kind of taking over for governments and, and trying to make people follow the company line. So you've got a system where you're creating this sort of grit and film noir and fight just naturally as part of the genre. I mean, you could go to something like solar punk, which is far more optimistic and see, you know, how can we use solar technology? How can we use other things to kind of heal the planet and uh, create a new system of being? But solar punk is not that old of a subgenre. There are not that many books in the canon. I think one I'm particularly looking forward to is coming up this year is The Bottom Line by S.B. Edwards. Mm -hmm. And that one is a going to be a Canadian solar punk novel. And I'm really excited for it. Um, full disclosure, I helped work on the book. So <laughs> yeah, that's not coming from nowhere. <laughs> but I'll, yeah. I'll For be honest, sure. I really like it. Uh, For but, sure. But um, I think when we look at some of the heroes in, like, even look at the rise of pulp fiction, you know, from the Penny Dreadfuls and the dime novels going into pulp fiction in, you know, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you see a lot of those almost flat characters. They are, you know, the token man hero. Look at me go, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And they're not necessarily allowed to be as complex as other characters because that's not what Pulp Fiction was about. And I think with a lot of people, when they view the earlier fantasy, like fantasy in the 19th going on to the early 20th centuries, they're looking at Pulp Fiction. They're looking at these quickly written, quickly produced stories that were being thrown into magazines and like 
not a bad thing. Just that's not necessarily the place where you're going to spend the time to develop a character like Henry Case from Neuromancer. Or even the character of Crowley from Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman's Good Omens. Like you're not necessarily going to be developing that complexity in something that's meant to be going out in this next issue. And then I'm going to continue it another issue. Or they're just kind of one-off stories that are meant to hit all of those markers that make for a successful story in the middle of a magazine and then move on to the next one. You know, so um, I be definitely awesome. think that there's yes. Yes. So, Ms. Bernard, how do authors typically develop the powers or abilities of sci-fi fantasy characters? I think, okay, so I stream on Twitch twice a week. Mm. It used to be four, now it's twice. Uh, so starting <laughs> in, uh, in March, I'm starting up again. I've taken a two-month hiatus just to kind of, you know, <sighs> cleanse the palate. And on Twitch, what I do is, is I take, I do critiques and we talk to authors and we talk to writers and, you know, we have this kind of jousting back and forth and I do an education session every month. It's a free three hour workshop that I'll do every month at the beginning of the month. Um, and what I always say is first, an author needs to know what they want the reader to take away from their work. Like, it's, it's wonderful to write a story because the story is in you. That's fantastic. And that is a wonderful thing to do and, and, and a, hopefully a fantastic experience as long as you're not traumatizing yourself with your own fiction. <laughs> uh, but you, if you want to publish this thing, then you need to know what it is you want the reader to feel. What is it that you want the reader to discover through this story of this character in this world? And once you know that, then you can start developing where the technology goes. And then you can start developing what kind of magic you're using. You know, if the whole point of this is, say, about the interconnected communication potentials of mushrooms and that sort of micellar layer underneath the soil, then you're going to create something like Hayden Moore's Sky Tracer. And you're going to create this world with these mushroom forests and these fantasy characters working through them. But, you know, one of the characters is naive to everything because they're from this above place. And another character is uh, completely grizzled by the area and wearing masks to avoid spores and all this. You're going to develop the magic in a certain way where it's about communication and the complexity of varying societies and how they work as dystopic, you know, combined units. If it's about, you know, cyberspace, a consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions of legitimate <laughs> operators in every nation, yes. aka William Gibson's Neuromancer, you're going to create a character like Case, who at the beginning of Neuromancer, he can no longer use his console. He is a hacker that plugs himself into the matrix. He plugs himself into cyberspace and is, you know, the kind of guy that goes through the ice, AKA through all of the virus, antivirus software and things like that and steals secrets and just does the things that hackers do. Well, at the beginning of the book, we see him at his lowest point because he can no longer do that <laughs> because <laughs> there was a bad deal that he came out on the bad side of and they messed with his brain. 
until he could no longer do the thing that made him money, the thing that he loved. And then this mysterious character named Armitage comes in and offers him the ability to fix it. And so you see him jack into the console. You see him put himself back into the matrix, like into this incredible cyberspace and him struggling with getting in there and breaking through the ice and hearing the disembodied ghost voice of his once mentor who is dead, but they took enough of his personality to create an AI out of that's going to help him out. Like it's a completely different feel than something like Sky Tracer, which is about these two women seeing basically mushroom spores and fungal spores in a different way. Um, so I <laughs> mushroom. think, yeah, it's incredible. Like the, the optics in Sky Tracer and fantastic is a debut novel. So yes, interesting novel, Miss Burnell. But before we go on, we want to shout out to the people listening in United Arab Emirates. Thank you, Shukran uh, Jazilan. Because in Dubai, I get 65% on Niger, Abu Dhabi at 31%, Ashman at 3%, and Sharjah at 2%. Shukran Jazilan, uh, United Arab Emirates, for supporting this podcast. Because this podcast is created and power writers all over the world, like Miss Safa Bernal. So let's continue, Miss Safa. What role that alien species play in shaping the personalities and abilities of sci-fi characters? Okay, I think if we're going to talk aliens, we have to talk probably, and I'll say this, this is what I honestly believe. The best version, the best written alien I've ever seen. The Ocean in Solaris by Stanislav Lem. Oh, so yes, there's I a agree. couple ways to look at this. You know, you could see aliens as reflections of parts of society that you're attempting to get people to look at in a different way. You know, we get this a lot with allegories of, you know, conquest where you have the big, gigantic, technologically advanced aliens attempting to conquer the woefully underprepared Earth, you know, and that really is that sense of conquest and, uh, in a way, colonization. You know, <laughs> you get a lot of that kind of thing going on. But if we're talking true aliens here, we have to talk about Stana's Love Lamb. This is a book that you will have to read in translation if you read it in English. Um, <laughs> How about exactly. in France? <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully you read Fra the French translation. Um, <laughs> but the ocean, the sentient ocean is a central enigma. It's this writhing entity that is so outside of bipedal humanoid humanity that the scientists go and they build a station around this planet in the middle of space and they're studying this ocean thinking that they're studying the ocean but really the ocean is studying them <clears throat> and being inhuman and i would posit inhumane it the ocean creates these situations where it gives everybody on the station hallucinations of terrible and awful and guilty memories to kind of poke at humanity with a stick and see how it works <laughs> and I love it. I, I absolutely love it because it's so alien. And I love my aliens to not just be like, okay, what kind of alien are you? Oh, I'm an alien based on this one people group. Okay, you're not really an alien. You're just a representation of something else. But this is truly alien. You know, it's almost like, you know, 
some of the monsters you get in certain things, but I love how intelligent and inhuman the ocean in Solaris is and how the humans like, you know, Giberian and Sartorius and Snout, they're, they're looking at this ocean, they're inspecting it and studying it. And they're seeing that there are these patterns in the sea, these, you know, incongruous things that end up coming up from the ocean in certain mathematical principles and certain things like that as a form of communication. And so they're like, well, obviously this ocean bears some form of intelligence, but we don't understand what it is. And the ocean, on the other hand, is like, look at all these creatures. No idea. Let's poke <laughs> at them. You know, I, oh, I, and really what the ocean does is put a direct reflection on the humans themselves. And so they have to feel that force of consciousness. They have to feel that guilt and that love that is in them and they cannot push it away. And I think that's the thing that I love about Solaris too. It's, it's that a lot of times when you read science fiction and you read certain heroes, it's like they've detached their emotional quotient and they've put it away. For a while, <laughs> I need to be rational. I need to, you know, someone's got to think logically right now. Okay, yeah, but you can't do that now. So ha, you have to kind of incorporate all of your emotions into what you're going to do next and how it drives some people to madness. True. Oh, I love it. If you have <laughs> not read Solaris by Sons Love Lamb, read it. It's so worth it. So do you think, Miss Bernal, you can create the same like that novel in the future? Not now, but in the future. I think the longer I write the Lieben cycle, which starts off with this buddy right here, Neon Lieben. It's my dog-eared reader's copy. You can tell, you know, I have lots of notes in it. Um, the more the character of Lieben is going to take on very inhuman traits. I think she almost starts off as becoming human. And then there's going to be a point in Emptiness at the Center and moving forward into Isle of Noises and uh, Merlin Awake. Uh, the next books that are, that are coming out in the next couple of years. Um, she's going to slowly kind of drift away from humanity because humanity is just too large. And in order to be personal, you have to only have certain amount of people around you. Like how many people in the world can you actually know and remember and actually know deeply and not just on the superficial level? Oh, that's Bob. You know, look, it's Kevin Bacon. Like, there's only so many people that you can actually be intimately and emotionally aware of. And so all of a sudden, when the scale of things gets so large, then Lieben's going to drift away from the personal and going to become more and more just this sort of entity instead of a person. And so I'm really looking forward to inspecting that as I go with the Lieben cycle. I'm looking forward to seeing hints of that in Emptiness at the Center, which is coming out later this year. Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward for your Gunungagap. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that one's gonna be a wild ride. <laughs> that one's from the Judge of Mystic Saga, so that's uh, Gunungagap is gonna be book four, and there's book one and two. Da -da -da -da. Yes. <laughs> um, son of Abel. Oh and yeah, Charanas. son of Abel. Yeah. 
I love Charnash. I'm very excited. I hope and this is book one, Charnash. I hope everybody goes and reads it again if you like emotional characters. Yes. So, Miss Bernal, how do sci-fi fantasy characters reflect the challenges, societal norms, and issues? I think science fiction, especially, also fantasy in its way, but for me, science fiction, it belongs in this place where cerebral science fiction is another technological and neon allegory in the cave. It is this parable-like place where you can tell your truth or inspect something about humanity without poking at somebody who's like, hey, that's me. It's like, well, no, this is a robot. You know, this is, you know, the psychological anguish and the anxieties of certain characters like Detective Toshimi Konokawa in um, Yasutaki, uh, pardon me, Yasutaka Tsutsui's Paprika, a novel that, again, I read in translation. I absolutely love it. Um, if you've not read Paprika, it's also a movie. Like you can also see the anime kind of movie, but the book is just fantastic. And so is the movie. But, you know, you have this detective, uh, Detective Konakawa, who is kind of broken and anxious and dealing with all these things. And then you have the character of Paprika, who is also a psychotherapist. You know, she's got this alter ego once she goes into somebody's dreams. Uh, and the alter ego is Paprika. And she's able to see the anxieties right in front of her as some form of construct, you know, and they're actually able to sort of play in that space of dream and identity, you know, and I think when we're able to see that the monster in the room has a physical form, we can start defeating it. You know, I think with fantasy, when we look at archetypal literature and we look at, you know, the dragon, you know, usually there's a form of dragon in a lot of early fantasy and a lot of fantasy now. Um, and that dragon is either something to be usurped or defeated uh, or joined with, you know, and then become a, a kick-ass dragon riding badass um pardon my language but <laughs> usually that dragon is something to be defeated it is the embodiment of the evil around you and when it is the embodiment of the evil around you, you know think of the greed of smaug you know and how it poisoned the land around the mountain you know and the hobbit you know think of what would have happened if they didn't have something to defeat and the warrior archetype, which we get a lot of in fantasy, the point of that one is to defeat the dragon, whatever that dragon is, whatever the embodiment of evil is, defeat it. And then the, the reward for defeating that dragon is the chance to go home and, as we see in folklore, live happily ever after. after. <laughs> you know, that is why a hero or a warrior goes to war, they go to war, not just to be part of battle. You know, there is that berserker side of a lot of people and that's totally fine. But in fantasy literature, especially in the archetypal fantasy literature, the point is to go to battle and then be able to go home, to build a life and to enjoy that life. And so you have to defeat this evil before you can go home and enjoy a quiet and decent existence. Um, 
Whereas the sort of magician archetype, that that wizard, that magician, understands that the dragon is not to be defeated, that we are our dragons. The dragons are actually us. And they are a reflection of ourselves. And so in order to defeat the dragon from that magician perspective, you have to transmute that energy. You have to change that energy. You have to change those things that are wrong in ourselves until we can create the magic that heals society. Uh, so I really like looking at both sides of it, really, you know, a monster to defeat, but also that monstrous piece of ourselves that we can look at with a radical lens. You know, it might be a fairy princess. It might be, you know, <laughs> the unnamed narrator in a wild sheep chase. It might be the character of Svetlana and Girl of Light. You know, it might be any of those, but we're seeing this way forward where if we're reading a dystopia, we can kind of be like, oh man, you know, I'm getting this pathos. I'm getting this sort of catharsis of, of reading something that might kind of cling to me in a certain eerie way but we're also seeing that okay how did society get there how do i make sure that our society doesn't and i think that's where the most effective sci-fi comes from it's both entertainment and it's an ability to go like hey yeah so in neuromancer like the corporations who take over yeah that was that was a mistake um hmm, okay so how can we prevent that yes interesting question yeah. <laughs> But before we go on, Ms. Bernal, I'm inviting you to listen to my other podcast, Food 101, on our fourth season with Chef Alessandro, one of the best executive chefs in one of the five-star restaurants in downtown Toronto. So please do listen to our latest episode. We talk about Valentine's recipes. That's a love month, love month, people. But still, please do listen to it. And... Our books are out, not only one, but 13 volumes, people. Food 101, Volume 1, Basics, until 13 is the only book that you need. How to create a delicious food. Available on Amazon and leading online bookstores worldwide. So, Ms. Burnell, how do authors balance human traits with supernatural or futuristic abilities in their characters? I think... First, they need to understand that for every power that you give a character, there needs to be sufficient stakes. You know, I think a lot of the issue that I've been seeing now, this is specifically in, in movies lately and less in books, but you get this in books, too, where things are almost like a problem comes up and it's almost instantly solved, usually by the girl boss character who swoops in with their infinite wisdom, knowledge, magic, or power, um, and boom, the problem is gone. And that creates a situation where there's never any stakes. It's like, you know, Superman going up against a bunch of bank robbers that all they have are pillowcases on their heads and guns. Well, there's no stake there. Superman's going to wipe the floor with them. He's just going to take of them course. all out in two seconds. And they're going to be, and you know, tied up with the belts in the middle of the bank waiting for the police to arrive. Like, there's no real stake there. And so if we're going to give people power, which is great. I love it because, let's be honest, you can make people blow things up with their minds in fantasy and sci-fi. That's freaking cool. We've got yes. to allow ourselves to be entertaining and allow ourselves to be cool and to have those fun moments uh, and those powerhouse moments. But 
if you're going to have that power, you have to have corresponding weakness and complexity. You know, there has to be some form of struggle and there has to be some form of struggle, which is overt that we can actually experience as readers. And so with that power that you're giving that character, you need to make sure that the stakes are correspondingly high. And I think too, one thing that I've been seeing trending is this sort of overpowered character. You know, this character is infinitely powerful for every situation that they enter, or you think that there are going to be stakes, but those stakes are a house of cards and a rainstorm. They're just going to dissolve because they they don't have enough to them to last. And that sort of power fantasy does have its place in certain places, but does it create long lasting complex characters? No, it's closer to the Pulp Fiction that we had last century <laughs> that most people have forgotten about. They might remember one character, maybe two. And usually those characters they remember from those short stories are the complex ones. You know, usually they are the few that actually had some complexity to them. You know, not very many people remember Captain Quasar. You know? like, um, we need to create the antagonist force of those books in such a way that it feels like there's a potential for loss here. There's a potential that the protag will not come through in the end and that we have that tension raising forward. And I say antagonist force because it's not always a character. Sometimes it's the setting around them. Sometimes it's the apocalyptic earth with radiation poisoning so bad that they have to go back down um, into those tunnels otherwise they'll die or you know they'll end up with cancer you know and then they have to kind of play with how many minutes do I have left I have okay you know my best friend you know is 180 seconds away if I book it I only have 90 seconds left before I start you know getting to dangerous radiation levels do I go take that journey or not you know do you have that sense of stake so stakes create tension and tension can also be created between characters but i think that you just have to make sure that there's multifacets to all of the characters you portray and not just one you know if you have one really well-defined character and the rest of the people are paper dolls that doesn't work either you have to make sure that there is a sort of corresponding complexity to the characters around them uh and uh, go from there i knew for me when i was writing char nash you know this is a myth punk series. And so myth punk, you know, it's looking at gods, goddesses and folklore in a punkish way. There is subversion of certain traditional themes. There is some grit. There is some magic. I've got a lot of surrealistic aspects to this novel because that's part of myth punk. Either, you know, this nonlinear storytelling or something that's kind of a postmodern literary convention, you know, that usually goes into myth punk. And the main character, Caleb Matheson, has a significant amount of power. Uh, both almost political power, but also just physical power because he's a demigod. He's the grandson of Thor. Um, but situations keep him off his feet. He can't get his footing because everything keeps changing so rapidly. He's like, oh, crap, what do I do now? Oh, my goodness. You know, and so he <laughs> spends half the book trying to, like, figure out what's going on. And once he finds out what's going on, he's able to do something to help against it. But then events happen at the end of the book and it takes us to Sun of Abel. <laughs> so the second book. Me, yeah, da -da -da, takes us to Son of Abel where we get Caleb's lowest point. 
And yes, the people around him understand how powerful he is. We have an expression of how powerful he can be at the end of Charnash. Um, but for me, when it comes to the Judge of Mystic Saga, the quartet of novels, it was about first showing who he is as a man and showing, showing who he is as a lover, a husband, as somebody just part of his world. And then to see that down point, that lowest point where he needs to call for help. And when he does call for help, all of a sudden his family comes around him and helps him get back up to that place where then all of a sudden in book three, you can see his power for what it really is. And it was very important for me for Book of Revels and for Ganungagap to then be able to let him go loose. Because I felt like we had two novels to investigate who Caleb is and um, kind of prove why he has certain strengths and certain power. So that when we get to those big battle scenes, when we get to those, you know, gigantic moments of like, oh, whoa, dude, you know, it makes sense. But it's also something earned. And I think that would be the other thing I would I would tell writers. Your protagonists have to earn the power they take. They can't just be born with it. It's 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 not Maybelline, you know. You have to earn your power. Uh because that's what real life is. You know, yes. we don't start infinitely powerful. We start as children who need to learn the way that we should go. We start as people who stumble and don't always do the right thing and don't always know what to do. And then we get better over time. What is it? 10,000 hours to master something? <laughs> and so you're More than that. 17, yeah. 100,000 hours, anybody? 100,000, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, in, in what ways do sci-fi fantasy characters' journeys typically differ from those traditional literature? I think science fiction and fantasy allow for more surrealism mm, than yes. in traditional literature, than in something like literary fiction. Literary fiction is grounded in realism. It is grounded in a sense of this, this has to be kind of standard kind of human. And science fiction and fantasy take the brakes off. You can heighten things you can expand them you can add supernatural force you can put people in a sort of compression pot you know and uh, seal it up and see what shakes where yes realism and ultra realism that we're getting in a lot of literary fiction can have really high stakes for that person you could still have you know incredibly passionate characters i mean some of the best characters that have ever been written have been in literary fiction uh and you know a lot of stories that stay with people but i think that through the fantastic through the extra imaginative through the different world builds we can detach from our experience of humanity here on this planet and go somewhere else for a while I think that you have the ability to sort of shake things up in a different way. You have the ability to escape. And that ability is really important because life is hard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and life and is too short. <laughs> yeah, it's too short. It's difficult. And depending on when you were born and what generation you were born in, you're dealing with wars and economic depressions and you're dealing with tons of incredibly gritty stuff. 
And so sometimes you need to be able to escape those problems and let your mind rest for a while. And it can be even more sort of healing to escape the confines of the world that we're all stuck in and go somewhere else for a while and experience something else for a while. And, you know, we go with, you know, the protagonist of C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet trilogy, you know, the Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and that hideous strength. And we end up on a completely different world, but he's still seeing it within the framework of his own until he starts breaking that framework. And I think that um, part of the thing that fantasy and sci-fi does is it releases us to look at things in a completely different way or to believe in a little bit of magic, to believe that a hacker can plug themselves into their computer and go into this incredible world of AI and corporate ice, something that seemed more fantastic back in the 80s when William Gibson was writing the Sprawl trilogy. And now it's like, yeah, that's scary quick. (laughs) Um, Oh my goodness. Yeah. When I was writing Neon Levin, I ended up having to re-edit the book at one point because it took, you know, eight years to develop the manuscript and the world and everything like that. Um, And by the time that I got to like 2020, I was like, oh my gosh, a bunch of the stuff I was writing about eight years ago as being something that would happen in the 2080s is happening now. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) I have to redo my science. I have to up my game. I had to add quantum computing in a way that I wasn't prepared for back, you know, 10 years ago when I was first researching my cyberpunk trilogy. So, uh, but you get that sense of trippiness, that, that surreality, you get that ability to detach and just kind of be in another place for a while and experience magic. We don't have magic in this world unless you believe in a a belief system, which allows for magic, which some people do, you know, we don't have that same connection to, you know, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, the elements or you know the earth itself or to some form of mystical goddess or flower that grants immortality we don't i mean i haven't found that flower (laughs) i would like to if anybody knows a flower that grants immortality uh i will trade you some books for it you know (laughs) let's make a tea (laughs) (laughs) you know Hmm. can you invite our listeners to support all your books thank you so much for being here everybody i love being on book 101 review it is a joy to work with mr lucas and to just be able to talk about these sorts of things if you have liked anything i had to say or are interested at all at all in reading cyberpunk and mythpunk literature from a canadian perspective please visit safaburnell.com. That is S-A-P-H-A-B-U-R-N-E-L-L.com. And you can find where all my books are. My books are available everywhere. <laughs> you know, they are very <laughs> highly distributed. So uh, please feel free to order them online or ask your local bookstore to bring them in for you. And if you're in a position where you're like, mm, man, I'd love to buy them, but that's five books. And, ah, you know, hold on, my purse strings are a little tight right now. Please feel free to go to your local public library and ask your acquisitions librarian to bring in the works of Safa Burnell. Libraries are a fantastic resource. And I, you know, I can't talk to how libraries are everywhere in the world. But 
but from where I am in Canada, they are a fantastic and wonderful resource and they purchase books. So you can bring in those books that you love. You know, you can bring in my books and read them yourself. And then also members of your community can read them as well. And all of that just works to enrich our world. At least that's my intention. Uh, so again, my name is Safa Burnell. I am the author of Usurper Kings, which is a poetry collection. Neon Lieben, Charandash, Son of Abel, Macabre and Monstrous, Lenses, and Warped Lens. So I hope yes. you have fun with all of those. And I hope you like some characters that can hit you in the gut and make you smile at the same time, because I love to instill yes. my heavy emotions with a lot of humor to balance everything out and make sure that the tension has release so i'm looking forward for gununga gap looking forward so let's support miss safa burnell because if you support her more 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 books oh miss burnell thank you for your time and thank you for yours Yes, more to come, people, and see you soon.